Well, go ahead and open up your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to pick it back up in verse 7, where I left off the last time. Paul's been talking about, you know, the, the great mystery of God and, and uh, how that God had made him a minister. Look at verse 7 there. He says, verse 7 and 8, actually, he says, Wherefore have I was made a minister. You know, you don't choose to be a minister. You've got to realize that. So often people do. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. But Paul said he was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach the, among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. First thing we need to notice here is that Paul said that he was made a minister. Like I said, uh, he didn't pick it. He, he didn't choose it. Uh, God called him to it. You know, according to the gift of the grace of God that was given unto him, he says, by the effectual working of God's power. Not his, but God's. But then he said this. He said, unto me, who am less than the least of all saints. If you're taking notes, my friends, you ought to underline that. Paul said he was the least of all the saints. And is, he said, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ? It's important that we understand Paul's mindset here. You know, we got a lot to learn from it, which is one of humility. And it's genuine humility. The first thing I want you to get is his wording here, how he words it. When he said, unto me, he, he just can't believe the privilege that has been granted unto him. You know, because he, he counted himself as the least of all the saints that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul counted his ministry as a privilege, and it is a privilege. And so often I think that uh, many people who are in it don't treat it that way, but it is. And one that he did not deserve, that's the way he treated it. You know, if you remember back in Timothy, Paul was talking about Jesus, uh, you know, saying that Jesus saved sinners, he said, of whom I am chief. You know, this wasn't some fancy saying and Paul trying to sound humble. He meant it. That's the way he felt. Paul had never forgotten from whence he came or what Jesus Christ had forgiven him of and, and how he had set him uh, on his feet after he fell to his face on the road to Damascus. You know, Paul, Paul counted his ministry, as I said, a great privilege, you know, and uh, it's just something that we need to do. This is Paul's opinion of himself, my friends. This is what he says, yet it is the opinion of a man who has been truly called by God and has been taught personally by Jesus Christ, you know, and, and, and he went on to write, you know, two-thirds of the New Testament, yet he looked at himself as the chief of sinners and the least of all the saints of God. Over the years, I remember Pastor Chuck at, at conferences that I would attend, and Chuck would always emphasize the humility that should accompany a, a man who is called uh, in the ministry. Because ever since the church has 
came out of, you know, what Jesus Christ started. From the very beginning is what I'm trying to say. There has been many men who have stood behind the pulpit who somehow, as Chuck used to say, think that they're doing God a service by <laughs> preaching his gospel. You know, Chuck said that he, he really used to get upset because he would see these men strutting around on the stage as though they were something, you know, that, oh, you know, if, if it weren't for me preaching your word, God, you know, I mean, like, as though God really got the prime part of the deal, you know. And Paul was nothing like that. You know, he, he had a, a, a humble attitude. And, you know, so many who don't have that, um, it's sad when you see it. But I, I do think that for the most part, it comes from people who are novices, who, you know, they went to seminary because, unfortunately, they probably couldn't hold a real job in the world. And I know that sounds harsh, but in my 40-plus years of ministry, I could not tell you how many times I have found it to be true. And that's unfortunate. But Paul was nothing like that. That's my only point. Paul did not believe that he deserved to be a minister of Jesus Christ because, as he said, he had persecuted the church of Christ. You know, he had laid waste to it. And we must never forget that God resists the proud but he giveth grace to the humble. I heard an old preacher say one time, and God is either doing this to you or he's doing this to you. So he resists the proud, but he giveth grace to the humble. Do not make a mistake, uh, my friends, and to think that somehow because a man goes to Bible school or he goes to a seminary that he's called. That's got nothing to do with it. I've got a really good friend of mine who very well may be listening tonight uh, who went to seminary and he did very well and has a degree in it. I remember when he came to me and he sat in my office and told me that he had this desire to go to seminary. And I remember and I said, uh, so Dan, you want to be a pastor? And he said, no, I just want to go. And I just think maybe I could learn something. You know, I said, well, then by all means go. You know, there's nothing wrong with going to seminary. There's certainly nothing wrong with going to Bible school. It, it can be a great benefit to people, uh, if you go to the right one, that is. But so often what we find in ministry are men who genuinely think that it's an easy income. and uh, or, or they have this deep-seated need to be respected or something. I, it's, it's anything but a call of God. So Paul was made... A minister and, and I want you to really get that he was made a minister all ministers are made by God um, I would model myself I really think that Paul his opinion of himself is something to be emulated and to be honest with you I've, I've kind of you know and I'm sure that we all have a streak of pride let's face it we were humans and uh, we all fall short but we seriously want to realize that we're not doing God a favor because he allows us to preach the gospel. I mean, come on, you know, we uh, were studying last Sunday and Jesus said if these would hold their peace, uh, his disciples, that is, the very stones would cry out. So if a rock could be made to talk, uh, God can use just about anybody, you see. <laughs> so, you know, be humble is, is, is the lesson that we're taking from this. Because Paul certainly emulated that. He you know, was a great example of a man who walked in humility, who understood his own wretchedness. 
You know, it's a get to. It's a privilege to do what we do. And never, never take that for granted, my friends. I don't care what size church it is, whether you're pastoring one of 10 people or 10,000. Uh, never take it for granted. Quit trying to be cool. You know, I remember Pastor Chuck saying that, and, and so many of my friends, and, and even some guys in Calvary Chapel, and, and uh, I, I would caution them. You know, that tendency in the world that we're living in, because I'm telling you, time is getting short. God is shaking the church, my friends. I mean, think about think about how many times you may have rolled out of bed on a Sunday morning and you said, yeah, you know what? I really don't have time for that today. I've got better things to do. Or somebody else had made a demand on your life and said, yeah, your, your, your attendance, uh, you're assembling together, even though God said forsake it not. Yeah, we're, we're asking you to forsake that because we've got something better for you to do, you know. Uh, you got a baseball game or you got whatever that thing may be or whatever it is or a job even. I want to I challenge you in this and think back. It's hard for some of us, especially the younger people, to realize that there was a time in this country, in this country, when nobody would do anything on a Sunday. Now, you can call that religious, you can call it whatever, but there was a respect to set aside a time for God. And my friends, i got to be honest with you, only the older generation now has that. Do you realize that? They're the only ones who have that. Most of the younger generation, I'm not saying that they don't like going to church because many of them do, but a lot of them, it's, a, um, it's an option. You know, it's an option that they readily set aside, but look at it now. Now they can't. Now they can't. So I do think that there's a testing going on, and the Lord is trying to wake up the church during this time. And let's, uh, as Paul humbled himself, you know, let's humble ourselves and say, Lord, you know, what is it you're trying to teach us? What are you trying to show us? And let's be teachable at this time. You know, Paul's attitude here is to be, like I said, genuinely emulated uh, by any man who believes he's called. You know, because Paul's attitude towards himself was that he was the less of the least of the saints. And I mean, think about that. I'm, I'm less than the least. That's the, what he said. And he believed it. And yet God used him so mightily. Why? It, you remember Saul, and it's not in my notes. I'll give it to you for free. But you remember back when Saul was made king. And, you know, as he became king, he became haughty. He became high-minded. And eventually the Lord would take the throne away from him. And, and he told him, though, he says, when you were little in your own sight, I made you king of Israel. You know, God giveth grace to the humble, my friends, but he resists the proud. You know, pride comes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. And it should be and have no place. I, I just watched a video. Somebody had sent it. I don't even know. what. You know, like I said, I keep telling myself I really need to quit watching YouTube because it just drives me crazy sometimes. And somebody had posted on there and was asking a question of if this was right. And so against my better judgment, I watched it. And here was some preacher. I don't know who he was. And very tiny congregation. And he was basically whipping them into... Uh, uh, for doing something, and he was standing up and basically just doing some stupid, stupid stuff and just being very hurtful. And 
what I wrote on it was run, don't walk to the nearest door. I said, this guy's either a novice uh, or he's not called or he's way over, he's way overextended. And now he can't find any grace in what he's doing. Either, either way, uh, you should never set for abuse like that. You know, God hasn't called a man of God to do that. So humility is the thing, you know. If you're going to be in ministry, you've got to be humble. And it's, uh, you know, it's something that Paul did very well. And he didn't even have to try. He just believed it because he understood, you know, from whence he came. Once again, look at verse 9. He says, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the ministry, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Christ Jesus or by Jesus Christ. Everything that God has done for you and me, my friends, he did through Jesus. That's why Jesus has to be the central theme of the church, the centrality of Christ in in our worship. Uh, Paul has reiterated this theme in these first three verses, you know, that he said over and over that everything that God has done for you and me, he has accomplished both through and by Jesus Christ. So it's by Jesus. It's always by Jesus. Even the creation of the world was accomplished by God through and by Jesus Christ. Verse 10. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Most Bible teachers believe that when Paul here is talking about the principalities and powers that he's speaking of angels. And I agree with that. I think Peter said that there were things that pertain to God which the angels desired to look into. In a, in a way, some people talk when, you know, there's been many books written about angels. I mean, and, and scarily uh, sometimes because people come nigh unto worshiping them. And they begin to speak of angels as though somehow they're omniscient, which they are not. They're simply created beings. I mean, the word angel simply means m- messenger. You know, but there's plenty of things that they really do not fully understand as far as the full purposes and the plans of God are concerned. They are inclined to watch the purposes of God unfold, just like you and me. Now, it is obvious uh, through Scripture that they do have a certain better grasp, if you will, of prophecy than uh, the mere mortal man. As we were discussing last Sunday, uh, God had revealed some pretty, uh, pretty cool prophecies that, you know, delivered to Daniel by Gabriel, the, the archangel. So they do have a grasp of these things, uh, but not fully understanding them uh, because they have to see them come to pass in order to uh, come to a full understanding of that. Now, when it comes to the things and the purposes of God, people are often looking for proof. They want proof of what's uh, being said or being done. I understand that. In fact, you know, we're told in Acts 1-3 that Jesus showed himself to be alive after his crucifixion by many infallible proofs. I love that verse, and I love that because, you know, what's he talking about? Well, some of those infallible proofs were 500 eyewitnesses uh, who, you know, and later on, even the apostles, there was nine apostles who went to their death, and I'm talking heinous deaths, 
you know, declaring the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, but Peter said that uh, in First uh, Peter one uh, nineteen that we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. So the things that the angels desire to look into, Paul said, that's the principalities and powers, which, as I said, are angels, that they might know uh, by what is happening in the church the manifold wisdom of God. So they're watching to see what, what goes on in the body of Christ. It's been suggested that the angels were probably shocked that when God decided to come and to indwell mankind, the glorious mystery of God, that God will actually indwell you by the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. You know, that, that our bodies become the actual temple of the living God. I'm sure they were shocked by that. The fact that Christ dwells in my body is the hope of my glory. You know, the mystery of God. You know, I, I'm positive. I, I am very persuaded. I'm sure that the angels couldn't grasp it. They, they just couldn't believe it when God finally did it and when he came and made his abode with us because God had not revealed it to them in time past. They didn't know it. But as the principalities and powers took knowledge of it, as it took place within the church, I'm sure they stood back and shook their head and went, why? <laughs> Somebody, we were talking, you know, I said angels are marvelous things in, in that they are ministers. You know, the Bible says, are they not all ministering spirits? And they're sent to minister to the saints. But the relationship that you have and I have with Christ and God is not like theirs. They're not like us. You know, you have a relationship that they desire to look into, but they can't comprehend it. Why? You're a triune being. You know, you're made after the image of the living God. God created man in his own image. You know, the superiority of God, yes, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that, tri that trinity. But you're a trinity. It's inferior, no doubt, but it's in the image of God. We are body, soul, and spirit. But once we become born again and, and God indwells us, then we become spirit, soul, and body. That's not angels. They don't have that. You know, uh, and I'm sure it, 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 it flabbergasted them that God would come and make his abode with us uh, because they hadn't seen it coming uh, until they saw it happen in the church. Look at verse 11. He says, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access. If you're taking notes, underline that. We have boldness and access with confidence, oh man, by the faith of him, not my faith, but the faith of him, that is of Jesus Christ. Back in chapter one, you know, Paul said that we have been accepted in the beloved, you know, and that we need to, and we need to emphasize that fact, my friends. You know, God accepts me because of my faith and because of the faith of Jesus Christ. He accepts me on that. Now, 
Paul said that we have access unto God, which is pretty amazing when you think about it uh, because God had never given. When you go back and read the Old Testament, we have something in the body of Christ that the Jews never had. They didn't have access to God. No, 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 no. They had to go to the priest. They had to go to the temple. They had to go through somebody else, you know, in order to be in the presence of God. You remember when God gave Moses the law, you know, there on, on, on Mount. You know, he told Moses to, to first make a boundary, you know, around the mountain so that the people couldn't come close to it unless they would be destroyed. And so Moses went and, you know, he went up there and communed with God. But when the people saw all the things that were going on, the, the great phenomenon that was taking place in the presence of God, they were scared to death. They were frightened. They told Moses, you know, Moses, you, you go up and talk to him, you know, and, and you tell us what he said. You know, we don't want to come near that. You know, we, uh, we're good with that. You know, the fire and the smoke and the thunder and the lightning uh, and the thick cloud upon the mountain. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't feeling it, my friends. You know, it scared them to death. You know, and they told Moses, you know, yeah, you you go talk to him. And uh, we'll just listen to you and we'll take your word for it. So after the law was established even, you know, the precedent had been set there on the mount. Because after the law was established, then the high priest would have to go into the Holy of Holies for the people. And he would stand before God for the people. And that was only done one day out of the whole year. Of course, they went by the Babylonian calendar. So one day out of 360, the priest would go in and he would make supplication on behalf of the people. He would make sacrifice first for his own sin and then for the sins of others, okay? So the holy guy, the guy that they had to go to, the most holy guy there was, the priest, had to make sacrifice for his own sin because he was flawed too. And so he only did that one time out of the year. In fact, even when the priest who was <coughs> considered the most holy among the people, he had to tie a rope around his leg. And as he would go back behind the Holy of Holies, they had a bell. You know, the bells would, would be chiming and they would be ringing. And as long as they could hear him behind the veil, you know, tinkling, <laughs> they knew he was okay. But when the bell stopped or they heard a thud, <laughs> you know, they would simply start pulling the rope and they would drag his carcass out because he obviously had dropped dead. Why? Because of his own flaws and sin that had not yet been taken care of. And he was coming before the Lord in a very profane way. This veil, the symbol of the separation of God and man, that was in the temple, it, it was thick. I mean, it, it's been said that the, that the veil in the temple was probably two and a half to three inches thick, woven by hand. It was huge. It was huge. And it was one piece. And yet, the Bible tells us very clearly that on the day that Jesus was crucified, that that veil was rent. It was torn from the top to the bottom. Because at that moment, my friends, Access had been granted to anybody who came to God by faith. You were 
accepted. You were allowed to come in. In, in, in Hebrews 4.16, Paul said it even, even more clear. He said, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There was a time when we were alienated, the Bible says, from, from God. We could not approach him. We had no way to come to him. But now you have you've been bought or brought close to him. You've been brought nigh. You have access to God. And you're encouraged to come boldly unto the throne of grace. Not arrogantly, but boldly. Paul says, with confidence. And I love that. Because it's the confidence not in myself, but in the one whom I've trusted, the one who made the way. I have confidence in him. You know, I'm convinced that he is who he said he was, and he was able to do all that he said he was able to do, and he has made the way. And so I come boldly, sins and all, before my sins separated me from God. Now they do not separate because one has taken care of it. Jesus Christ nailed him to the cross, taking them out of the way. And now we have access to God by the faith of Christ. One of the great heresies of Roman Catholicism is that they keep the people on the other side of the veil, even though the veil has been torn and taken out of the way in Christ. Well, they reestablish the veil because they have kept the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, if you will, because what they teach the people is that you can't come to God. You have to come to the Father. as That's what the word Pope really means. It actually means bridge builder or Papa. You know, it means bridge builder. Bridge builder between who? Well, the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ, Jesus. And he has made a way for you to have access all by your lonesome. Regardless, you don't have to be that most holiest guy as the priest had to be for the Jews. God says, now you all are the priests. You are a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood in the blood of Jesus Christ. You have free access anytime you can come boldly unto the throne of grace with confidence. You know, the Bible even says that we have this thing where we may have confidence in the day of judgment in that as he is, so are we in this present world. That's why we have confidence because Jesus has made the way. But you don't need to go through a priest. You don't need to go to some other saint to have them pray for you. You come by yourself. You come boldly unto the throne of grace. Look at verse 13. He says, Wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul had been through a whole lot of trouble, my friends, as you well know. He had been a prisoner. He had well, he was a prisoner when he wrote this. And then he had been beaten. He had been stoned, scourged, and just a multitude of other torments and trials and tribulations and Paul said don't worry about those things they're for your glory I suffered them for your cause to bring the Gentiles to Christ verse 14 for this cause he said I bow my knees unto the father of our Lord Jesus Christ you know Paul says here that he bowed his knees now there are some who have come to the erroneous conclusion based on this verse and, of course, a few others like it, that kneeling is the only proper, proper physical position that 
counts uh, when coming to God. But this is a, this is a wrong conception. And it's, it's their hang-up, but it shouldn't be yours. I've actually been in, at churches where they really believe that unless you're kneeling, you aren't really praying. Yet, when you search the scriptures, you will find that the children of God are found not just kneeling, but standing in prayer. You'll find that they are lifting up holy hands in prayer unto the Lord and lying on their faces in some cases to the ground, prostrate, you see, in prayer. When I read this today and as I was putting my notes together, it reminded me of of, of worship even and how rigid people can become in their, you know, in their tribute to God, whether it's in prayer or whether it's in worship. Some people get so hung up whether we stand or whether we sit when we're singing. I've often found this just strange. You know, even in Calvary Chapel, you know, um, we came up with this thing that either they all stand or they all sit. And I'm, you know, I got to be honest, I've never agreed with that. I was like, why? Uh, it just doesn't make any sense. But yet every church that I've served in, uh, the people tend to be that way. I, I've you know, I've heard people tell me that uh, they just didn't feel like they were worshiping unless they were standing. And I was, I felt sorry for them, you know. <laughs> and it's the same that you're saying, it's like saying that you're not praying unless you're kneeling. And it reminded me of a poem by Sam Walter Foss, and some of you have heard me uh, quote this before, but I, I want to quote it. It's called The Prayer of Cyrus Brown. And here's how it goes. The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keyes, and the only proper attitude is down upon his knees. No, I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and wrapped and upturned eyes. Oh, no, 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 said Elder Slow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with his eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. It seems to me his hands should be austerely clasped in front with both thumbs pointing toward the ground, said the Reverend Dr. Blunt. Last year I fell in Hodgkin's well. Head first, said Cyrus Brown. With both my heels a-sticking up, and my head a-pointing down. And I made a prayer right then and there, best prayer I ever said, praying as prayer I ever prayed, standing on my head. You see, my friends, the point of that poem is that it's not the position of your body that matters. It is the condition of your heart. And that's whether it is in prayer or whether it is in worship of song or the study of his word. You know, it's about the condition of your heart. Look at verse 15. He says, Of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inward or the inner man. Now, in the book of Zechariah, Chapter 4, verse 6. 
Here's what he says. He says, Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Too often, we try to rely upon our own power in order to quash the wiles of the devil. Temptations will come, my friends. Uh, trials are inevitable, as we're finding out. But the way that we fight them is in the power of God's strength by the Spirit. So Paul prayed that we are to be strengthened with the might by his Spirit in the inner man. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now notice here, verse 17, the word dwell there. It's a very interesting word. It means to make yourself at home. <laughs> I love it. It's not just to make yourself at home. It's to be comfortable at home. You know, because, you know, well, you all know what it's like to not be comfortable, right? We've all been to a place where you found yourself out of place. And you kept start, and you started asking yourself, now, why did I come here? And, you, you know, you're looking at your clock going, boy, I, I'm, I'm looking for any way to get out of here because you're just that uncomfortable. You know, there's those, but those kind of places. But, but the contrast to that is that there are places, and I've been to them, where you're just at home. You know, I've got a, I've got a, a brother who out in California, I love him to death. And, and uh, you know, when I was pastoring, at, you know, years ago, uh, we would go out to California for our pastor's conferences, and I would always go out there with one of my pastor buddies, and and, uh, and we would always stay at their house. And you just felt at home there. It was always such a great place to be, and they were just given the hospitality. You know what I'm saying? You got there, you felt like you were, uh, you, you just felt treated more worthy than what you were worthy of. Um, I don't know how else to put it. You just, you were relaxed. You know, you were kicking off your shoes. You kicked off your, your, you know, your, your, your cares and your strives. You just forgot about everything because you were so comfortable. That's what he's talking about there. In order for that to be the case, as long as, you know, as far as Christ abiding in our hearts, our hearts must be in tuned with Christ so that as he is at home in our hearts, there's no contention, you see. There's no conflict of spirit. There's no straining. There's no embarrassment. You'll remember in Ezekiel chapter 8, the prophet was taken to Jerusalem, you know, by the Spirit. And God told him to dig a hole in the wall. And so he dug this hole, and then Ezekiel crawls through it. And when he gets on the other side, he, he looks around and he sees all manner of evil written like graffiti on the walls and just all kinds of corruption and, and things and corruptions of the mind and of the heart, just things that were abominable written on the walls. Ezekiel gets confused at this and, and asks the Lord, and, and, and the Lord explains that what he's allowed him to see is, is the minds of the leaders of Israel. He's given him an insight into the people who are the leaders of Israel. 
This is what they're thinking about, he said. This is the stuff that they're setting before their eyes. So this question comes to mind. As Christ is making his abode, his home, you know, in your heart, and he looks around as he's kicked off his shoes and he's made himself comfortable, what's he see on the walls of your heart? You know, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart, you know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, a good man from the abundance of the goodness of his heart, that is the abundance of the goodness of the Lord, speaks good things, brings forth good things. But an evil man, the evil things. You know, we need to be in tune with the things of Christ. So often, people who make a profession of faith, this is why Paul told Timothy, let those who claim the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. But so often, uh, we can put ourselves in compromising positions, that is, as far as the things that we allow into our heart and into our mind and into our eyes even. You know. And it should make for a very uncomfortable situation, but we want to be in tune, you see with the things of the Spirit as far as Christ is concerned. You know, Philippians 4, verse 8, he says, Finally, my brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are, are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there's any peace or any praise, think on these things. The word means meditate. Meditate on these things. You know, if you're thinking about those things and you're meditating on those things, there won't be graffiti written on the walls of your heart. Certainly not blasphemy. Certainly not the things that Ezekiel found written on the walls in the hidden mind. You know, in that passage in Ezekiel chapter 8, he's, the Lord says that they say, well, the Lord doesn't see. Well, yes, he does. All things are naked and open to the eyes of whom we have to do. So think on the good things. You'll put those things that, that are in line with the things of Christ. Verse 17, that you may be rooted and grounded in love. This is what keeps us in tune with the things of Christ, that we might experience more of the love of God, you see. You know, the love of Christ, when, when we're in tune with that, then it, it's when the love of God truly is able to flow from our lives in reality. And, and it really makes the things that we do for God genuinely grounded in love. Verse 18. May be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth, and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all fullness of God. Hmm. When our hearts are rooted and grounded in love, it makes us able to comprehend the breadth of God's love, the, the, the length of God's love, the depth of God's love, and the height of God's love. And to know, if you're taking notes, make note of that word know here. And to know the love of Christ, which passes, under, er, passes knowledge. The word know here in the Greek is a, is a very interesting word. It's the word genosko. And it means to know something by personal experience. In fact, I had a good friend of mine years ago uh, who was a colleague in, in the laboratory. He was a fellow analyst. And uh, he owned a laboratory himself, and he, he named his laboratory Genosco uh, because it means to know 
by discovery or personal experience. And in this particular case, uh, by analytical means, if you sent him a sample, it didn't matter what it was, and, and asked him for a particular parameter that, that you wanted to know was in it, say lead or copper, you know, he would put it through a series of analytical tests, and he would then be able to tell you both qualitatively and quantitatively exactly how much of that matrix was in the sample. So because Christ is abiding in our hearts and we are in tune with his love, we know <laughs> the love of Christ by experience. We know. We have experienced the breadth, the length, the depth, the height of all that God has planned for us. You know, and he has seated us, Paul says, together with Christ in heavenly places. He wants us to comprehend, you know, in order that we might be filled with the fullness of God. You might think that this is an impossibility to be filled uh, with the fullness of God. It might even sound crazy. It might sound like a fool's errand. And I would grant you that if you're talking about man trying to accomplish this in his own means, it would be a fool's errand. It would be absurdity. You know, with, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are impossible. You know, look at verse 20. He says, now unto him that is able. Listen, right now we need to be taking note of this verse. You know, because we've got so many people, my friends, who are in fear. You know, because of, of what's going on in the world. But he says, unto him, that is unto God, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all. What's all mean? All that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Listen, here's my admonition to you as we close. Do not allow your limited thinking to trickle over into the spiritual realm. Do not allow your own concepts of easy and complicated to be applied to the things of prayer. And here's what I mean. God is able to do above and exceedingly more abundantly everything that you could, I mean, way above that, that you could possibly ever ask. You know, there's an interesting passage in Genesis uh, 1819, or 1918, excuse me. He says, is there anything too hard for the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. You know the answer. The answer is no. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. You know, so often when tragedy hits, you know, now it's the COVID-19 or whatever that might be. And it is serious, no doubt. And people get that, and we've, all, we've, we've known people who have gotten it, and we've prayed for those people, and, and those people have been delivered. But what can I suggest to you? I put no more prayer to somebody being healed for COVID-19 or cancer than I do for someone being delivered from a headache. <laughs> I know you think that sounds crazy because we tend to think, and well, this is easy and this is hard. Because we hear, well, somebody's got a headache. And so we go, well, I'm going to pray for you, but if that doesn't work, you know, here's a couple of Tylenol. Listen to me. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is no. It's no harder for God to heal cancer of the worst sort 
than it is for him to heal a headache. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. So when you come to God, when you boldly come to the throne of grace, don't limit God. Now, he's not limited anyway, but in your mind, don't do that. Make your request known to God. Be upfront. Whatever that thing is, God's able to do way more than anything you could possibly imagine, and there's nothing too hard for him to do. Be in prayer, my friends. As we are approaching this Sunday, which is Easter Sunday, I'm excited to talk about the one thing that God has given to us that really is the linchpin of all of Christianity. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all of this is for nothing. But we're going to talk about that Sunday. So God bless you. The Lord be with you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Uh, Be in prayer. Don't limit God. Keep the church in prayer, the church of Jesus Christ, in a general sense, that we learn from what's being done right now, that we genuinely grow in our understanding by this sequestering that God has arranged for us, this time out, if you will, this pausing, that we would learn how to minister correctly and that we would take serious the things that God has granted to us that we take for granted. But they're really gifts of grace that God has bestowed upon us. Let us treat it as such. God bless you guys. I love you. I thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for sharing. If you've got friends who need to hear this message, simply share it. You know what to do. I'll see you next time. God bless you.